Extra, read all about the Man of Fire, the Human Torch. In 1939, an extraordinary scientific feat was achieved in the lab of American scientist Professor Horton. Hello? Who is this? The Scientist's Guild? You want to see my creation? Certainly. Any time you say... Uh, tonight? Oh, very well. At eight. Before long, newspapers across the country aroused the public about Horton's incredible achievement, which his fellow scientists were swift to investigate. You know, Horton, those newspapers have aroused the public, and we have been sent to investigate this so-called human torch. I thought so, my friends. Uh, come this way, please, and I will show you everything. Hey! Oh, hey, everybody! We don't mean to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know that you are listening to a dramatic reading of the first Marvel comic. So listen closely. To the uninformed, Horton's subject looks like but an ordinary man. He looks harmless enough. Do you mind feeding him some air, Horton, so we can measure the heat given with this pyrometer? Very well. But this is no ordinary man. The guests burst into a frenzied state as the hands of the meters have already gone off the dials. Good Lord, the hands of the meters have already gone off the dials. And you have no control over the flame? None whatsoever. That is why I'm afraid. And now that you've seen it, what is your opinion? My opinion is that Dr. Horton didn't really think this through. <laughs> to our advantage, he just created one of Marvel's first superheroes. Horton, this may hurt, but since you've no control over him, I'm inclined to agree with the newspapers. Destroy him! Surely there must be some other way. There is a way out, Horton. Entomb him in a concrete block. That's it? Eureka! That's the answer. I don't know if that's the answer. Oh yeah, we're just getting to the good part. Horton enclosed his creation in a metal tube and submerged him in cement. But months later... Fire! It's the human torch! He's on the loose! Ah, I'm burning alive! Why must everything I touch turn to flame? Oh no! The poor human torch. Now that's what I'm talking about. The out-of-this-world characters, the incredible scientific experiment gone wrong. This is what makes the golden age of comics so great. It's pure imagination. Welcome to Marvel's Declassified, hosted by me, Lorraine Sink. And me, Evan Narciss. I promise not to burst into flames during this episode. No promises from me. <laughs> On Marvel's Declassified, we're going to unpack how Marvel tells stories and what those stories tell us about the times in which they were created. With unprecedented access to the world of Marvel, we'll bring you firsthand accounts from the folks who were there and the experts who know our stories best. Evan, I am so excited to be hosting this podcast with you. For real, I'm really excited. Me too, Lorraine. Oh, and if you haven't already caught on, you happen to be in the company of two of the world's biggest fans of all things Marvel. I mean, that's totally right. We're both quote-unquote nerd professionals. Yes! So, throughout the season, we are going to be talking to iconic writers, artists, and editors who shaped the Marvel canon. We'll talk to historians and key players of the time. And uh, we're going deep into this. In this inaugural episode, we're talking about comics that were the foundation of Marvel as we know it today. When somebody says Marvel, Marvel, <laughs> like that, 
Most of us probably think of heroes like Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Avengers, you know, those heroes who were born in or around the 1960s. But Marvel has this really rich history of heroes dating all the way back to the 1930s. Heroes like the Human Torch. Totally. But for characters like the Avengers to exist, those original superheroes from Marvel's early, early days would first have to die. (gasps) So dramatic. We know you just fell in love with the Human Torch, but don't worry. He's going to be okay. Characters like the Human Torch didn't just die, they evolved. And their evolution took place thanks to the many other genres of comics besides superhero stories that Marvel made throughout the mid-20th century. The very comics we'll be talking about today. So what does that mean for Evan and I? Well, it means we're talking about sci-fi and horror and romance and westerns and teen humor. There, There's so much excitement around every corner and every page. I mean, you can feel and hear that excitement in those comics, like the one from the dramatic reading we just heard. That was Marvel Comics number one from 1939. It's the very first comic published by Marvel, which was then known as Timely Comics. Yeah, back in the day, Marvel was called, as Evan said, Timely Comics. But then a little bit later, it became known as Atlas Comics. And then finally, it became the Marvel Comics that we know and love. So you'll hear us refer to all three of those different names as we journey through this company's history. So it was Timely that introduced the world to the Human Torch. And even though this was the company's very first comic, the character is in so many ways a classic Marvel archetype. I mean, this guy, he's either blessed or cursed by powers that he can't control, and the world views him as a freak. That's classic Marvel down to the Submariner, or or even the X-Men, or the Hulk, or all of these characters who have this really fraught, intense relationship with humanity. And, and this is the time period when these archetypes that later came to define Marvel were just first being invented. Creators in the 30s and 40s are defining what a comic book can be at this point. And often they're going off of popular pulp novels of the time, which had these seedy, lurid depictions of what city life was and where danger lurked around every corner and no Ooh. one could be trusted. I know. And and early comics really took a lot from that. I mean, this human torch story takes so much from that. And that's the thing, right? That Human Torch story is not necessarily just for kids. There's a little bit of everything in that early era. There's there's crime comics to fantasy comics and animal funnies to mystery stories. And most importantly, at this time, there is a brand new trend we see in stories like the Human Torch that would go on to shape the future of comics. Dun, 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 dun. The superhero. To help us understand the origins of the superhero in comics, we called in an expert. My parents used to uh, set me in the back seat of the car and said, here, just read those and keep quiet. And of course, I couldn't read yet, which was a real problem. So. This is Matt Smith, Dean of the College of Humanities and Behavioral Sciences at Radford University in Virginia. This guy studies comics for a living. So um, with the publication of Action Comics number 1 in June of 1938, you have the introduction of the superhero. And Superman really becomes an industry standard. Um, Not only is it outselling everything else on the stands, but because it is, it's being widely imitated across the industry. One person who took note of the success of superheroes was Martin Goodman, founder and publisher of Timely Publications, 
With over 15 years of experience in magazine production and distribution, Martin Goodman had seen it all, including the rise of the pulp stories that paved the way for comic books. He wasn't a writer himself, but he had an eye for numbers and what would sell. And and Martin Goodman, who was uh, nothing if not aware of the marketplace, uh, recognizes comic books are hot. He sees the tally sheets. He knows what's moving on the newsstands. And so it's not surprising when Goodman decides to go first and foremost with superheroes, and he's looking for heroes like the Submariner or the Human Torch because he needs a product that will compete with the Superman. Another great example of an early Marvel hero is Namor, the Prince of Atlantis. There's something uncanny about this. In Namor's origin story in Marvel Comics number one, a couple of unfortunate divers find out that Namor is no ordinary superhero. Good lord, what is that? A swimmer? But how can... Holy smoke, our lines are cut. Calling surface, calling surface. Suddenly, Namor darts over and attacks the divers, stabbing one violently with his knife and crushing the other's helmet with only his hands. No, 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 no. Oh, this is bad. Uh, But he's not done yet. Namor ascends to the ocean surface to the diver's ship and gleefully crashes it into the nearby rocks, splitting it in two. What kind of hero does this? An anti-hero. Namor is trying to do right, but he does it in arguably the wrong ways. See, his people were once the victims of genocide at the hands of human seafarers who cruelly bombarded his beautiful underwater home. To his people, Namor is a hero. Matt Smith explains it really well. Namor the Submariner is not exactly entirely noble, right? Superman had absolutely unimpeachable credentials, right? He fought on the side of justice. Namor is fighting the good fight, but he's fighting for his people. And if you get in his way, he will hurt you because you're in his way. And those aren't exactly the attributes we would necessarily subscribe to a hero, he gets the job done. I mean, he, he saves the day, but he does it in, in such an abrasive way that it's hard to comfortably label him hero. It's more comfortable to have something a, a little less uh, conclusive than that to label him with. So anti-hero works really well. To further complicate things, Namor's father is a human. So on the one hand, Namor is often conflicted about his feelings for humans, and he will eventually come to fight alongside them to battle common enemies like the Nazis. At the same time, he feels an obligation to seek revenge on those who harmed his people. And I think that's what early Marvel comics did to sort of distinguish themselves from the pack. Their characters had just a little more depth to them than what we were seeing from other publishers. I feel like you can see the seeds of what would become contemporary Marvel in a story like this. It's got complex characters and moral ambiguity. I mean, Marvel is clearly starting to find its own unique identity. The end of that story, the first appearance of Namor, ends with this line. And so, Namor dives into the ocean again, on his way to further adventures in his crusade against white men. I think if you read this comic not in 1939, you can see that they're they're trying to do some interesting things with race and uh, colonialism and, and even environmentalism, mm-hmm. at least for the time. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of surprising to go back to these old Golden Age stories of Namor, a character who's like become a mainstay of the Marvel Universe. He's clearly coded as a racial other, right? He's clearly an outsider, 
um, to all of the surface world. So they are pushing the envelope and stretching some boundaries. And yet at the same time, when you read these golden age stories, you see illustrations that, you know, rely on racial stereotypes. You see sometimes these sexist and racist bits of terminology pop up here and there. And I think it's really easy to look at these stories and either say, wow, that's so progressive, or to say, wow, that's kind of problematic. And the truth is that they can be both. Exactly. And that's the reality of the time in which Marvel's earliest comics were created. By the time Marvel debuted in 1939, America's Jim Crow segregation laws were deeply ingrained into the fabric of the country. Seen through this lens, some of Marvel's early comics are clearly products of their time. On the flip side, this era saw the birth of another major Marvel superhero who's also very much a product of his time, but in a very different sense of the phrase. I'm talking about Captain America. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, Americans are starting to heal from the Great Depression, but that's still in everybody's mind. There's a specter of war overseas, and what we would later call World War II is well underway. And then Blammo! I love a Blammo! Yeah, that's right, because Captain America roars on the scene in his first comic. He is punching Hitler square in the jaw, and suddenly Captain America becomes an expression of how many people see the country, or at least the aspiration of what America should or could be. So in the era of timely comics, some of the characters, like Captain America, were classic heroes who saved the day. Others, like Namor, were more complicated. Yeah, but you know, this is what superheroes looked like in the 1930s and 1940s. They were kind of a reflection of the times that they were created in. But times changed, and so did people's taste. Between 1939 and 1949, Marvel introduced two dozen new superheroes. But between 1950 and 1960, they debuted just barely enough to count on one hand. (laughs) So where did the Human Torch go? Where did Captain America go? Where did all of these other great characters from Timely Comics go? Remember when we told you in order for our heroes to be reborn, they first had to die? Yep, this is it. Captain America's final issues in the 1940s. I think this is so cool because it shows the shift away from superheroes in a very literal way. Captain America, you know, had these really wonderful patriotic storylines during World War II and and even for a little bit after. And it was, you know, quite popular during its day. But starting with issue number 74 in 1949, the book suddenly changes its name from Captain America Comics, as it had been for nearly a decade, and it becomes Captain America Weird Tales. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, and it delivers on the weird tales. I mean, the story begins with Captain America's nemesis, the Red Skull, who is a big red-faced skull man. truly like a symbol of the occult. He's now in hell, gleefully writing Captain America's name in the Book of Death. When Satan isn't looking... (laughs) Now I can enter the name of the man I hate most in the world. So a hell demon sees Cap's name in the Book of the Dead. 
kidnaps him and casts him down into hell. <laughs> Your journey to the lower region is at hand. Descend. Oh my God. I mean, this is a Captain America comic. This is crazy. I know. And Captain America, you know, he, of course, then has to confront Satan himself. And he insists that his being sentenced to hell is a mistake. And Red Skull, you know, of course, is like, take Captain America, please. He should be dead. So Satan decides there's only one way to settle this dispute. The two of you shall luck in combat until one Surrounded by flames and evil spirits, Captain America and the Red Skull fight for their lives. You'll find the flaming pits a comfortable resting place for all eternity, Captain America. <laughs> Until at the last second, Cap delivers Red Skull a crushing blow and wins back his mortality. Ascend, Captain America, to the land of mortals. Captain America awakes in his chair in his home. It must have all been a dream. Oof. I bet he was really glad. No, 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 not, not so fast. In the final panel, Cap looks down at his hand and realizes that he's holding a piece of Red Skull's shroud. Ba, ba, ba. Was it a dream, Evan? So, wait a minute. <laughs> in this story, in a Captain America comic, he's yes. gone to hell. Yes. Wakes up. Thinks it's a dream, but yep. then holds in his hand proof that, yeah, he actually went to hell. Yep. Hell of a day. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of wild and, like, definitely not something I think you'd want to pass along to a kid in the 1940s. No, it's not. And the art, too, is gruesome and gothic and grotesque. And all of this is so unusual for a Captain America story, Mr. Red, White, and Blue, Apple Pie. It's also kind of wonderfully meta because, you know, Captain America comic books were suddenly taking this turn from superhero comics into horror comics within the story itself. You know, really literally, Captain America is cast down to hell to be dead by creatures of horror. And he's literally told that his time is up. He's out of here. He's done, right? And he's going to be put on the shelf. So then Captain America doesn't even appear in the next issue of Captain America Weird Tales. Cap's literally replaced in his own comic by the Weird Tales. If I was a kid buying that comic, the next issue, and there was no Captain America, I'd probably feel really let down. But, you know, Marvel Comics had to change. This one issue is like a perfect microcosm of what was happening in the larger comics industry. In order to survive, Marvel had to recognize that superheroes just weren't selling anymore. So what would sell? For that, we'll go back to Matt Smith. By the time we get to the late 40s, really after the war, superheroes start to take a dive down. They are decreasingly popular, and publishers are looking for the next big thing. And after the war, you know, if most of your audience is war-aged readers, you know, kids who came to maturity, went to war, and then came back, well, now they're 23, 24 years old, they may not necessarily want to read about superhero fantasies anymore. They may want something more sophisticated. 
And so crime comics, romance comics, horror comics, all of those things begin to appeal to an ever-widening audience who's like, I liked those superhero stories once upon a time, but I like different kinds of stories now because my palette is changing because I'm maturing. And the publishers responded by ever diversifying the different kinds of genres they were out there offering the readers. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like the country had spent all these years at war. So now that all the kind of global conflict is done, it makes sense that people would want to kind of settle down and enjoy a new period of prosperity. And now we have all of these new threats. You know, there is this fear that there is a massive nuclear power that we have already used on someone else. Will someone else use it on us? All of these circumstances of sort of post-war America really just created this perfect opportunity for the reemergence of genre comics. As Captain America's journey to hell demonstrates, one of those genres that saw this incredible boost in popularity was horror. We do see Marvel entering the fray, you know, in the, at the, the end of the 40s when it comes to um, crime and suspense, particularly horror comics. That's Terrence Wanke, professor at East West University in Chicago. He's written several books on comics and comic studies, and he's also an enormous horror fan. I think horror comics of this time are representing the anxieties of this time period. If I had to choose just one word, it would be dread. There's no moral um, at the end of the story. There is a dread at the end of the story. So if we look at Marvel Tales 95, uh, we have this, this wonderful bait and switch. Um, we saw a giant monster on the cover. But really, the story was about a scientist who was trying to discover what was going on when he found these, these bodies that um, had been drained of life. Um, and ultimately, um, he discovered that it was the thing that, that preceded an alien invasion. But he only discovered this at the end, at a point when essentially it was too late to save these people. Um, so the twist was all about the dread, right? You know, and it had nothing to do with really revealing a giant monster at the end. This, this was fascinating um, because, in part, they were keen into some of the anxieties within the American consciousness. I think a lot of this kind of comes out of the war with this idea of we're trying to do something wonderful and patriotic, and then Hiroshima happens. And I think, you know, one of the greatest horrors happened on American soil, and that's the internment of Japanese-American citizens. Once the war is done, you know, the scars of that treatment don't just fade away easily. The same thing with African-Americans, many of whom fought abroad and were promised, you know, this double victory, victory abroad and victory at home, equal rights. But their, their, their rights did not change. In post-World War II America, everything was supposed to be rosy and safe and productive. But there were these realities that kept cracking through that pretty veneer. Um, and brief pause, we want to let you know that Marvel at this time has gone from being timely comics to being called Atlas Comics. And I think it's important to note at this time that the comics industry is not one or two big publishers. It's many publishers of many different sizes, Atlas just being one of them. That being said, a big fish in the comic pond at the time was EC Comics, who were the gold standard of horror and crime comic books of the era. You say gold standard is more like the red standard um, Ooh, because yeah. there was so much blood and gore in EC Comics. They were, you know really kind of lurid and seedy. And again, that played out really well with the readership. 
And Marvel was just chasing that heat. They wanted a piece of the pie too, and so they followed companies like EC. And some of these creators were, were veterans and had seen horrors abroad. Terrence made a good point that creators' experiences overseas may have been a contributing factor to the nature of some of these post-war horror stories. The horrors of war are something that may have taken place over there, but it, it didn't just take place over there. And it had implications into the way that stories were told in comics. And another thing that really stands out to me about how these stories were told is the role that women generally play in horror comics. Most often, we would see a woman cast in a domestic situation. She's the perfect wife, except she's not. Um, she's unhappy in that role, and she does things to get out of it. And, and very often, it involves gruesome murder. The consequence of that is, is sometimes she's caught, but sometimes she's not. There's this open-endedness to the stories, um, which I find fascinating. We could read this story as a critique of the typical American dream, you know, the, the way in which we represent it, uh, with the happy wife at home with two kids and a picket fence. Um, and we could understand her as, as fighting against the strictures that were put on her. So all of this is to say that the role of women in these stories again, much like early comics in general, have this sort of dichotomy of sometimes being very progressive, sometimes being very regressive, sometimes at the same time. Yeah, there's this real push and pull, right? Yeah, this is the 1950s through the 1960s, and women's roles were meant to be serving their husbands, families, with little room for much else. And while sometimes horror stories were used as a critique of those strictures, other times they were cautionary tales for those who might upset the apple cart of the pre-approved American Dream, TM.com. True. Outside of horror, women's stories took on a more prominent role in another post-World War II comic genre that had a major influence on modern Marvel stories. It's also a genre that I just so happen to love. Tom proposed to me, and the night became enchanted. At first, everything seemed fine, and then the realization hit me like a thunderbolt. Now, here in my own world, I no longer love him! <laughs> I have no choice. I've got to go through with it. I've got to marry him. <laughs> Daughter, if you no longer love him, then you must tell him. A man deserves a wife who does love him. I, I never thought of it that way. Yes, I must tell Tom the truth. I love love, and I especially love romance comics. It was one of the most popular genres of comics in the post-war years. You know, superheroes, again, had become passe, but plenty of non-powered women and their relationships really stepped in to the spotlight. There was passion and jealousy and heartache and a lot of anxiety about whether or not he would call, a lot of tears, you know, very much like a dessert, sweet, delicious, not a lot of nutritional value, but kind of a tasty treat. Yeah, definitely comforting, right? Because there's this fantasy about finding true love and true partnership and support 
that was probably really enticing to readers at the time. Oh, I I also want to point out that not only were more people getting married around this time than any other point in American history, but also because of the country's newfound economic prosperity, more and more Americans were now able to marry for romantic reasons, mm-hmm. right? Like the soap operas on radio and TV, romance comics were great entertainment for readers who were enjoying the increased prosperity of the post-war years. Okay, so I love romance comics, but I think there's somebody who actually loves romance comics more than I do, and that's Trina Robbins. I like to call myself a historian because what I write about are the histories of women who drew comics and comics that women and girls like to read. But I also write them. I write comics and graphic novels. Trina was quick to point out what some people call romance comics actually includes two separate genres, romance and teen humor. The way I like to explain it is that romance comics are all about love, while teen humor comics are all about like. Ah, I see what you did there. But she had a few other differences between teen humor comics and romance comics to share with us as well. Well, I think that the teen comics were really simply peppier. Everybody is bouncing around and running and there's a lot of really cute action. I think that the romance comics were a little more serious and I have to say serious with quotes uh, because I truly have to tell you that I don't think that any teenage girls who read the romance comics took them seriously. They were pure entertainment and we liked them because they were about pretty girls and handsome men and cute clothes, but we never took them seriously. I also think this is kind of fun that all of these kids that are growing up in the 50s are growing up with these romance comics. So there's a huge audience of young people that are reading these comics. The whole concept of the teenager was still relatively new. In the early 20th century, teenagers, they really weren't teenagers. It wasn't until the country had the leisure so that 14-year-old kids didn't have to go work in the factories and and 16-year-old girls didn't have to get married. That's when you got teenagers. They're not kids anymore, but they're not adults. You know, for girls, again, because these books were aimed at girls, although boys did read them, they're old enough to dress pretty and to pick out their own clothes, buy their own clothes. You know, if they make money from babysitting or their allowance, they're old enough to wear lipstick. It's the in-between part of growing up that was so much fun because they didn't have to be responsible adults, but they could be independent. And, you know, that's what establishes the kind of genre of teen humor. Say, Patsy, would you like to share this bar of chocolate with me after lunch? Buzz Baxter, you know perfectly well that I'm on a strict diet. Patsy Walker was easily the most famous of Marvel's teen humor characters. She is this adorable high schooler who has a lot of attitude. And all she really wants is the attention from her sometimes boyfriend, Buzz Baxter. But of course, her many frenemies are always ready to stab her in the back and steal her boyfriend. And all she wants is love. What's wrong with that, Evan? You know? Nothing. Not a damn thing. And it was very classically, traditionally stereotyped teen stuff. Buzz Bacta worked in the ice cream store where the teenagers would all go to sit around and play the jukebox 
and uh, drink ice cream sodas after school. And it's just really fun. It's a lot of fun drama, but it's very low stakes. Yeah, and the coolest thing about the Patsy Walker comics, I think, is the fact that readers could send in their own fashion designs and hairstyles. Ooh! Right? So, you could be an aspiring artist out there and send in a drawing of a swimsuit that Patsy could wear or a dress, and you could have that work printed in a Marvel comic at the time. It's Patsy's Fashion Cutout. Be sure to send your designs, too, for possible inclusion in our next issue. But a large part of what defines these stories in the 1950s are white, middle-class, heterosexual aspirations, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't see any kind of queer characters. You don't see any interracial couples or romantic relationships between people of color at all. Mostly, you have some of these female protagonists who are wondering if they should have a more open attitude towards the guy who doesn't check all the boxes. Man, and there's just a lot of responsibility placed on women to be the caretakers of the relationship. I mean, I think we see that in media in general, but especially in this time. Yeah, it's it's so wild. There's so many of these stories. The dudes don't have to do any emotional labor at all. True. Yeah. Every now and then, one of those stories comes up that are that are amazingly unusual and feminist, and you wonder... What was the writer thinking of, you know? Well, there's this one Millie the Model story. I think it's from the early 50s where she finally tells Clicker that, yes, I'll I'll marry you. And he says, oh, my God, that's wonderful. And, of course, once you're my wife, you won't have to work anymore. You won't be a model. And she says, yeah. And as the story goes on, He's just so excited that she's going to marry him and stay home and raise the kids. And she's getting more and more depressed because she wants to work and she's getting sadder and sadder. And finally, finally, it dawns on Clicker. And he says, you know, maybe we should wait. Maybe we should wait and get married some other time. And she says, yes. So even though forward thinking ideas sometimes made their way onto the page, these 1950s romance comics were still also influenced by some of the less progressive ideas of the time. In hindsight, we can definitely see their shortcomings. We also admire them for their ability to wrap readers up in the intimate details of human stories. These comics, though sometimes melodramatic, gave us a chance to invest in the emotional lives of characters, sometimes overlooked in these more whiz-bang-pow kinds of tales. And, you know, they made us laugh and cry and fall in love. Marvel's The Classified will be right back. All right, let's take a look at another genre that was starting to become really popular in the post-war era, the Western. Not sure if dudes were doing any more emotional labor in these comics, (laughs) <laughs> but they did die spectacularly and wore really cool hats. You know what? We'll take what we can get. Out of the West rides a lone figure. Two guns at his hips, a song on his lips. Seeking adventure, fighting injustice, and righting wrongs. Introducing the Two-Gun Kid. Yeah. That narration comes from the first issue of the Two-Gun Kid from 1948. You can't think about American history and American pop culture without thinking about the 
kind of iconic figure of the cowboy and of the genre of westerns. I mean, these are definitely the first superheroes. They're American superheroes, and they're wildly popular already. There's the Davy Crockett TV show. There's a million Western movies. Louis L'Amour has written over a hundred books, and my father has read every single one of them. And we've listened to so many of them on car rides, I can't even tell you. You know, look at this one issue of The Two-Gun Kid, and you can learn so much about the period in which these comics were created and about how America saw itself at the time. Like, let's look at this caption. Out of the West rides a lone figure, two guns at his hip. So we've got the might makes right idea, right? Like the person who's empowered to use these guns has to be a good guy, right? This is sort of a fantasy of what you might be like if you were the best gunslinger in the West. And like, who doesn't want to kind of live out that amazing fantasy? I'm giving you more of a chance than you deserve, Dawson. Draw your gun before I send you down the last trail. You fool! I'm the fastest shot in this state. I'll kill you. Oh, kid, how can any of us thank you? Smiling so sweet is thanks enough, little lady. Hasta la vista! I didn't want anything from you. Just the completely altruistic joy it brings me to know you're safe, little woman. (laughs) Man. Uh, But when you look at these stories, like, they definitely feed into, like, a Mm self-mythologizing that America tends to do about its own histories, right? Yeah. And, you know, these Western comics were totally part of that process. And again, what are the things that you don't see in some of these stories? For one thing, you don't see indigenous people being pushed off their land. Yeah, well, cowboys would not seem oh so heroic in that light, would they? Right. From epic westerns to heartfelt romances, the world of post-war comics featured inventive stories from all kinds of genres, which had never really experienced such success and popularity in the preceding superhero era. But then, in the mid-1950s, the industry's fortunes drastically changed. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt, and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Oh, God. (laughs) That guy is Frederick Wortham. He's a psychiatrist. And he's a leading figure in the mid-century movement against comic books. I know it's wild to think about it, but he really was trying to sell people in the idea that comic books were this great social evil and they were ruining everybody's minds. If you've ever seen the old comic book and you've seen those little white seals on the cover that have the words approved by the Comics Code Authority, that, that seal was the mark of a powerful censorship board in the world of comics publishing. That happened because of him. I think it's time to bring back Matt Smith of Radford University. He explained what killed the superheroes, so I'm sure he can tell us what killed the genre comics. Polite society critiqued comics from 1940 onward. And so uh, comics were uh, the scapegoat of much of uh, pre-rock and roll America. If, if there was a societal problem, you blamed it on juvenile delinquents and juveniles read comic books, so it must be those comic books that are ruining our kids. The industry hadn't done itself any favors by turning to crime comics and horror comics, and those stories really were for 22, 23, 28, 38-year-olds, not 12-year-olds. But at the time, a lot of Americans thought that 
comics were comics, and they were all for kids. And that belief propelled a vocal backlash against the industry from people who thought kids shouldn't be reading these stories. And the voices were growing louder and louder right up to the United States Congress, who, as part of its juvenile delinquency uh, task force, began to look at comics as a source of corrupting youth. And so the industry got really scared uh, and thought, okay, if the government doesn't come in and police us, then the American public may just turn on us as a whole. And so we need to establish some kind of reputation for quality control. And the suggestion came that we should have our own in-house censoring body that goes about the process of reviewing content and assuring parents with a seal on the cover of every comic book that this is safe for your children. The results of the Comics Code are predictably... If everything is safe for children, then nothing is written any higher above than the level of a child. Immediately following the Comics Code Authority's introduction in 1954, the types of stories in comics drastically changed. In romance stories, if there was any sense of, clutch your pearls, ladies, promiscuity, (gasps) that woman was gonna be punished for it. And, you know, while romance comics always had you know, previously promoted marriage as sort of the end goal of a relationship. Now it was insisted that marriage was the only goal of a relationship. Jim, I'm stupid and blind. I didn't realize you and the famous author Norman Taylor were one and the same. I wanted what I already had. Can you ever forgive me? Come here, you beautiful little ninny. Oh, Jim, Jim! Western comics changed, too. All the violence was gone, pretty much. And the bad guys were always brought to justice. I'm glad I gave myself up. I want to pay for what I've done and get a clean start. Horror comics all but disappeared. The few sci-fi and horror comics that were able to get published were light on thrills and heavy on preaching. But tell us, sir, how could you resist that disintegrator? There's no power in the universe that can do that. But there is such a power, Joseph. It is the power of faith. Basically, under the Comics Code Authority, comic book stories could frankly be pretty bland. And not surprisingly, publishers lost a lot of readers. Comics were in need of a bit of a transformation. Oh, Reed, I feel so strange. Susan, you're fading away. Somehow, the cosmic rays have altered your atomic structure, making you grow invisible. On November 1st, 1961, readers first witnessed that fateful visit to outer space that would change the Marvel Universe forever. Yes. I'm myself again. It happened all so suddenly. Thank heavens you're all right, my darling. All right? How do you know, wise guy? How do you know what'll happen to the rest of us? Ben, stop. Wait. Look what's happening to you. You're changing. Run, Reed, darling. He's turned into a... some sort of... a thing. He's as strong as an ox. I'll prove to you that you love the wrong man, Susan. Drama. Then, all of a sudden, out of pure instinct, Reed Richards stretches his arms to impossible lengths and subdues his newly orange friend. And then Susan's younger brother, Johnny, starts to change as well. It's those rays, those terrible cosmic rays. They've affected me too. When I get excited, I can feel my body begin to blaze. 
I'm lighter than air! I can fly! Look, I can fly! Listen to me, all of you. We have more power than any humans have ever possessed. You don't have to make a big speech, Big Shot. We understand. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? I'm calling myself the Human Torch. <laughs> and I'm with you all the way. Same goes for me, the Invisible Girl. I ain't Ben anymore. I'm what Susan called me, the Thing. And I'll call myself Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic, AKA Reed Richards. His wife, Susan Storm, also known as the Invisible Girl. Susan's brother, Johnny Storm, who goes by the Human Torch, and their best friend, Ben Grimm, newly christened The Thing. What set the Fantastic Four apart from any other superheroes up until this point was their relatability. I thought of the Fantastic Four as more than just a team, really, but a family. This is the voice of the one and only Stan Lee, who wrote Fantastic Four number one. Stan Lee, who's, of course, co-creator of so much of the Marvel Universe that starts in 1961, he's leading the charge back to superheroes, along with co-creators like Jack Kirby and a host of other Marvel artists at the time. They're going right back to the genre where this medium really began. Their relationship was very deep. And what could be deeper than having Reed, the leader of the group, feel guilty because the one member who had been horribly affected, who had been turned into a semi-monster, because that had happened due to a project that Reed had fostered. And his friend, The Thing, who was an incredibly close friend, and they would have died for each other, but deep down, the friend would not have been human not to have had some sort of a lingering resentment because of what had happened to him because of Reed's project. So there were emotions involved that I felt the readers could relate to. You have to really think about what superheroes were like before the Fantastic Four. They were often aloof, and sometimes they felt more like aliens than humans. And by giving the Fantastic Four such relatable emotional insights, it made them really feel so different from any other superheroes we'd seen before. If you feel you know a character, it becomes easy to write him or her. I thought I knew all four of them. Stan did know these characters, or at least the seeds of them. You know, he and artist Jack Kirby were no strangers to all kinds of genres of comics from the mid-20th century that, you know, we've been talking about because they wrote Mm -hmm. and drew many of these comics in the 1940s and the 1950s. Here's what Professor Matt Smith has to say about that. So what do you see in Fantastic Four number one? Well, first of all, you see superheroes, which other competitors are selling granted, but you also see monsters, right? And Stan is writing monster book after monster book every month at this point. So why not throw a monster like The Thing into the book and see how that goes? Hey, we have all these fun teenage books over here, you know, Millie the Model and Patsy Walker. What if we had a teenage protagonist here? So Johnny Storm appeals to the teenage audience. He likes hot rods, guys. We're making all these romance comic books. What if we had a little bit of romantic tension here? So all of these other things that Stan and Jack and Steve Ditko are doing at Marvel at the time, it's filtered into and baked into that story. Now, it very quickly evolves into this unique kind of 
you know, superhero, uh, redefining the superhero genre. But but right there at the beginning, it's like, you know, a little of this, a little of that, a little of that doesn't hurt because they're all selling and maybe in combination, they sell well. Here's Stan Lee again. The Fantastic Four set the stage, I guess, for a number of hero teams. And then I did the X-Men, which was another team. Of course, it was a totally different type of team. The X-Men comics, since their first appearance in 1963, have also shown Marvel's mutants as a kind of dysfunctional family at times. And they represent a different kind of family. It's found family, where it's friends you meet who start hanging out together. You have things in common, like being a mutant, like being hated and feared by the world that you protect. You know, those kinds of things. You see the same kind of squabbles and tensions as in the Fantastic Four, but the love and support is there too. It's there but kind of like in a totally different way. Right, Lorraine? They're not just a bunch of heroes that agreed. They're like, hey, do you want to fight crime? Me too. Let's fight. You know, it's it's very much more a, a deep fundamental tie to each other, which means that there's a lot more emotional drama. There's a lot more connection. And I think that's something that makes these books really crackle with a different kind of energy that hadn't been seen in comics for this time. And I, I love what you said about found family because the X-Men is the ultimate found family. And of course, you have Professor X at the head of that, who is the weirdest, most controlly dad ever. He can read your mind. No, thank you. Yeah, you're 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 never getting out past curfew with that guy when when he's awake. <laughs> but amongst the X Men, because they are not related, they are found family. They have these romantic ties, which adds additional drama to their situations. You know. Can can I fall in love with a man of metal who's so much older than me, if you're Kitty Pride, Or, of course, the iconic love triangle between Jean Grey and Cyclops and Wolverine and Madeline Pryor. I guess it's really, it's like an octagon when you really start to unpack it. And, you know, again, that comes straight from romance comics, right? Mm-hmm. Plus, there are elements of the crime, horror, and sci-fi genres as the X-Men fight everyone from invading aliens to power-hungry villains. You know, they were a different kind of superhero family. And while we're talking about found family, the Avengers are exactly the same kind of thing, right? Mm. The success of the Fantastic Four paved the way for new superhero creations like the Hulk, Thor, and Iron Man. Eventually, those heroes all found each other and created a family of their own called the Avengers. So nice. And, you know, I feel like one of the reasons that these found families that squabble and have tension, I think one of the reasons that lands so well with the readers of the early 1960s is this uh, American culture is going through this profound shift, right? Mm -hmm. Counterculture is becoming is coming into prominence, right? Like we see political, cultural collectives and various communes starting to form, right? So the idea of people going off somewhere and trying to form a different kind of society or a different kind of family, I think that 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 finds you know fertile soil in readers' minds at the time. But that's the thing about all of this stuff that happened in the 1960s with this idea of found family. It had such a lasting legacy. It you know it started as sort of a gamble almost, trying something new, and now it is the bedrock of the Marvel universe, and it continues to be the gold standard for how you create a powerful team. Totally. And all of that starts with the Fantastic Four. The success of the Fantastic Four not only enabled the creation of more new superheroes, of course, but also allows Marvel to bring back some of the old ones. So characters like Namor, the Submariner, they, they start showing up again. In Fantastic Four number four, which is one of my favorite stories, this is wild, <laughs> Johnny Storm, 
runs into this homeless man. He thinks, hey, this guy looks kind of familiar. So Johnny uses his powers to light his finger on fire and shaves the homeless guy's beard, which rude. <laughs> Once he finishes, Johnny looks at the clean-shaven guy and says, Wait, his face! No, it, it can't be. It is! It is! He's, he's the Submariner! It's kind of cool because way back in 1939 in Marvel Comics number one, Marvel introduced the Human Torch in Namor. And now in 1962, Johnny Storm, who's the new Human Torch, gets to bring back Namor for a whole new audience. Oh, and if you want to talk about a fun love triangle, when Namor came back, he had his eye on Sue Storm. And you know what? Sue didn't mind too much. She was kind of like, okay, all right, if you know. I'm steady with Reed, but I don't mind a man in a Speedo. Namor, you got to have some respect for, like, what's going on in the Baxter <laughs> building, right? Like, I know maybe the rules under the sea are different, but, you know, it wasn't just Namor, who was an older character from Marvel's history that they bought back. It was also, like, Patsy Walker. Remember yeah. her? Patsy Walker came back, and in 1976, she became the superhero Hellcat. Yep. And... I actually think it's really cute that in these teen humor comics, she was always chasing her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Buzz Baxter. Well, Buzz Baxter ends up coming back too, but now he's a supervillain named Mad Dog. So now they fight like cats and dogs. <laughs> oh. Wow, okay. That's, let's see what they did there. But you know, if you hadn't read those early Patsy Walker teen humor comics, you, you probably wouldn't know what a profound shift this is for her to be reinvented as a superhero. And look, if we're talking about old characters that Marvel reintroduced, we of course have to talk about one of the most famous early Marvel superheroes, Captain America. He got a second chance at life as well. Yeah. He really comes back full-blown in 1964 in the Avengers number four, where Iron Man, Hulk, Thor, and all the other Avengers characters find him floating in a block of ice. And they thaw him out and they're like, Wow, it's the legendary figure of old, Captain America. So even within the comics, there's this wink and nod to the fact that Cap is a throwback character. And of course, that becomes a foundational part of his character, right? Like this idea that he's a man from a long, long time ago who's come back to be a hero um, in this new era. Wait, wait, Evan, wait. So what you're saying is that the dream where he's dragged to hell was actually what he was dreaming about when he was frozen in ice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that we got to do this. Marvel may be known for its superheroes, but those heroes wouldn't exist without the incredible variety of stories this company has told from so many other genres throughout its long history. Honestly, we've really only scratched the surface. We didn't even get to talk about fantasy comics or animal funny comics. The, the list really does go on and on and on and on. Really, if you take away anything from this episode, go read some old comic books. You'll never know what you find. If you're lucky, you'll even recognize a character who you didn't know got their start in Marvel's early days. Like maybe a World War II era superhero who got frozen in ice only to reemerge decades later and find a new family in the company of other newer superheroes. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'm Lorraine Sink. And I'm Evan Narcis. We'll catch you next week for another episode of Marvel's Declassified. Next time on Marvel's Declassified. Marvel 
has always been and always will be a reflection of the world right outside our window. We take a look at how Marvel superheroes fit into the world outside your window, and we peek through the windows of some of our own writers and editors. There were all these people that had nowhere to go on Christmas, and I felt like I found my people. What if Daredevil had nowhere to go for Christmas? Like, find the humanity. Find the humanity of the moment. If something happens to you and you have nowhere to go for Christmas, you know, cry about it maybe, but then write about it. Marvel's Declassified is a co-production of Marvel and SiriusXM. This episode is produced by Lorraine Sink, Evan Narciss, M.R. Daniel, and Zachary Goldberg, with help from Jorge Estrada and Persia Berlin. Rebecca Seidel is the senior producer. The creative producer is Harry Goh. The executive producer is Jill Duboff. The development manager is Brad Barton. And the story editor is Leela Day. The fact checker is Natalie Mead. The episode was mixed by Matthias Winter. And the theme music is written and performed by Edith Mudge. Special thanks to Sarah Amos, Dan Buckley, Daniel Fink, Ricky Purden, Joe Casada, Shane Romani, Ron Richards, Larissa Rosen, and Stephen Wacker. Additional thanks for this episode go to Michael Goodrum, Randy Duncan, Ben Saunders, Chuck Costas, Michelle Nolan, Michaela Jensen, Helen Rabel, Maria Loza, and Joseph Hochstein. And of course, a big thank you to the actors featured in our reenactments. Lucas Friedman, Brian Dorsey, Reginald Keith Jackson, Jillian Sun, Brendan McGrady, Kyla Wooten, Catherine D'Souza, Alice Kors, Andy McCain, Victor Vasquez, Sabine Shalwani, Brad Barton, Ryan Panagos, Zachary Goldberg, Tucker Marcus, M.R. Daniel, Jamie Frevely, Brendan Bigley, and Rich Dreher. Listen anytime with new episodes releasing every week wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>